Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We maintain the peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression. Trust, but verify. Well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger is joined by retired Marine Corps Major General Arnold Panaro. Panaro served in the Marines for 35 years, beginning as an infantry platoon commander in Vietnam. He also served for 24 years in the U.S. Senate, 14 of which as staff director of the Armed Services Committee under Senator Sam Nunn. Panaro is now the chairman of the National Defense Industrial Association and the author of the brand new book, The Ever-Shrinking Fighting Force. If you enjoyed the conversation, remember to subscribe to Reaganism wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five-star review. Thanks for listening. General Honor Panaro, welcome to the show. Privilege to join you. Well, uh, we've known each other for some time. Uh, both um, from when I worked on Capitol Hill uh, and then since leaving, uh, you've had many significant, important leadership posts uh, in and around the Pentagon and, and the U.S. Congress. Uh, it's, it's great to have you here. We're going to get to the focus of our discussion, today, which is your new book, The Ever-Shrinking Fighting Force. But before we talk about your book, uh, Arnold, just give our uh, audience a sense of um, how you became uh, such a force in the world of uh, defense policy in our military. You served in the Marine Corps for uh, 35 years, uh, rank of, of major general. You were the staff director on the Senate Armed Services Committee. And while that would have been enough for, for everybody you know, else in the world in terms of career accomplishment, you continue to stay engaged. Uh, most notably, you serve as chair of NDIA. We'll get to it, the National Defense Industrial Association. How'd you get into this world, a military family, uh, something you always wanted, or did you fall into some of these positions? I benefited from a lot of good help. I graduated in 1968, and that was the peak year of the draft. And my, my dad, who'd served with Patton's Army in World War II, it basically say, son, you don't want to be drafted because you'll end up going in the Army, and you'll end up going straight to Vietnam. And uh, so basically... Uh, everybody that year was going to be drafted. I went to see the draft board in Macon, Georgia, and find out if I could get a deferment for graduate school. My older brother, Anthony, who was two years ahead of me, the lady that ran it was Mrs. Beasley, and she was way up in years and wasn't very flexible. He had gone to see her when he graduated a couple of years before and asked for a deferment, and, and she didn't get it, so he wrote her a nasty letter. So when I went to see her, she remembered my family name and she basically said, well, if we don't get you in June, I'll get you in July. Fortunately, the next <laughs> couple of weeks, the Marine recruiter was on the campus and he basically, his uniform looked great. And he said, well, look, if you come in the Marines, you'll only have to spend two years. Whereas the Navy, the Air Force, they were six years and they were only looking for pilots. So two years sounded pretty good to me. So what did, what did you do wrong or what did that recruiter do right? They they, they, the Marine Corps got you at two years and you ended up spending 35 years in the Marine well, Corps. Well, the Marine recruiter at the time was a major, Major Jim Ray, and he sort of 
uh, submarine me a little bit because it was two years if you flunked out of Oxford Candidate School and went in as a private in, in Paris Island. If you got commissioned like I did, it was four years. So I spent four years on active duty. So uh, when I got on the Armed Services Committee, I was always skeptical of recruiters because I know they can sell you a bill of goods. But So I went into Marine Corps in 68, uh, went through officer candidate school, went to the Marine Corps basic school. I actually ended up in Vietnam as an infantry platoon commander a lot quicker than I would have had I joined, had I been drafted in the army. Had an infantry platoon primarily operating in the Quaison Mountains. All the Marines in my platoon were draftees. Uh, none of them had volunteered. Uh, I had some of McNamara's 100,000. These were people that the then Secretary of Defense, because the draft was so unpopular, decided to bring people in that really could not meet the mental standards that typically we had for even draftees. And these were really decent people, but good kids, but they never should have been in the military. Um, and so every day, you know, we were in some difficult uh, terrain and difficult situations. And I learned a lot. I mean, that serving uh, in combat, serving with these young Marines had a profound impact uh, on me. Uh, and, and also the fact that um, the day that I got seriously wounded um, in, a, in a firefight, uh, a young Marine corporal that wasn't even in my platoon, he was in the third platoon, I was a platoon commander of first platoon. Uh, their platoon commander was shot and wounded earlier in the day, so they put his platoon under me. We got into a pretty bad firefight. My corpsman got wounded, I was giving him first aid, and then I got wounded, and this young Marine corporal came out of a safe position to basically try to help me. And in helping me, he was killed. So I owe my life to this young Marine Corporal Roy Hammonds from Texas. And I pledged uh, after that every single day to do everything I possibly could uh, to make sure that we have a strong country, a strong national defense. Well, I, I know you have, and are, we've known each other for, for some time. You've, you've always been a kind uh, mentor and, 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 and confidant. Uh, I've never heard you share that with, uh, before, heard of it, but never heard it from you. And um, that is uh, that's very powerful. Um, and I, and it, it contextualizes for me uh, your emphasis and focus for years on, on personnel matters and, and making sure that we have the right people uh, in the military. Uh, you were referencing the draft, for example. Uh, you were on the Senate Armed Services Committee for, for really critical years when the Pentagon uh, changed. Um, tell us about your involvement uh, on Capitol Hill, how you got on to working for the legendary Senator Sam Nunn, Democrat from Georgia, who chaired that committee, um, and particularly uh, the, the reforms that you were involved in, uh, either on the personnel side, it was probably post uh, when we went to the all-volunteer force, uh, but other things that 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 how you got to uh, that really consequential work in the U.S. Congress. Well, Roger, I, I'd have to tell you, my, my going to work for Senator Nunn was kind of luck because when I went off active duty after my four years, I served the whole four years. I didn't, didn't take an early out or anything because I felt that was my obligation. I went to graduate school, and when I was coming out of graduate school at the University of Georgia, I didn't have a job. My wife-to-be had a terrific job in Washington, so I was going to move to Washington. I saw a flyer on the bulletin board in the graduate school that the Sam Nunn was starting a new academic intern program. I had never even heard of him before. I hate to say it, I had not voted for him because I was overseas during some of that period. 
And I got accepted and it was a 10 week internship. And I figured I'd get on that and look for a job while I was there. And I ended up staying 24 years. I started in his press section, but because I had a military background, he was on the Armed Services Committee. I evolved over to be his military legislative assistant and ultimately got to the Armed Services Committee. You're right. Uh, in the, the decade of the 70s, I went to in the Senate in 73. The Vietnam was still raging. Vietnam War was still raging. Incredibly unpopular. Um, by the way, as a, as a Marine uh, at Marine Corps Base Quantico, I had the riot control platoon and I was involved with two of the largest war protests that ever occurred. When the first one, we had a machine gun position on the steps of the Capitol. And then the second one, I had to keep the 14th Street Bridge open. Um, so I had that as a way of background. The, the, the Congress cut off the funding for the war and the troops were out. And of course, as we all know, it fell. The, 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 the military during the decade of the 70s um, had a lot of people in there that never wanted to be in. Thomas Gates ran a commission for Nixon in 1970 to look at changing from the draft to the all-volunteer force. He recommended that we do that. That started in 1973, but the problem was nobody wanted to volunteer. So right. The military was in really sad shape during the decade of the 70s. Towards the end of the 70s, we started basically putting money in to save the volunteer force, and then thank goodness, the Reagan buildup came along and built on that. Um, and and I, I want to harp on that. I mean, it's just uh, amazing. You seem um, uh, to get stuck in places, right? Marine Corps right. For, for decades, the uh, Capitol Hill with uh, Senator Nunn for decades. Um, uh, they have an eye for talent, clearly. The, the piece that, that I want to focus on is, you know, the Reagan years, the Reagan buildup. Um, you saw it firsthand. Now, you're supporting a Democratic senator who chairs a committee that is very important to the Reagan administration priority of rebuilding the military. And so you had a unique seat in seeing how does that get done, how you realize bipartisanship uh, when it comes to national security and national defense. But specifically, I'd love you to start with a comment on the following. Many people think the buildup is exclusively about more tanks, more ships, more planes but much of what President Reagan emphasized was restoring pride in our military. And that began with the military taking pride in itself. Uh, how did that happen? What's your best example of that happening? Yeah, absolutely, Roger. And, and I would say that, you know, the, the members of the Senate Armed Services Committee, then and today, those committees, just like your service on the House Armed Services Committee, has always been bipartisan when it comes to national security. We had legendary people on the Armed Services Committee when I first got there. John Stennis, Barry Goldwater, John Tower, Scoop Jackson, of course, Sam Nunn joined them. And these were, were, the Democrats were very conservative. They would be considered conservative Republicans today, in my view. Uh, and in the late 70s, when Jimmy Carter was president, people like Senator Nunn, John Tower, Scoop Jackson, and others began saying we weren't doing enough for defense. And they started pushing Carter to basically increase defense for, uh, to save the volunteer force. Fortunately, Reagan ran on a platform of peace through strength in the, in the buildup. John Tower, the Senate flipped in 1980. He became chairman. Scoop Jackson was the ranking member. They saw things uh, identically as did Senator Nunn and many others. And so there was tremendous support uh, at the beginning of the Reagan administration for the Reagan buildup. 
And as you're right, it, it was not just uh, tanks and planes and ships. It was basically saving the volunteer force, letting the military know that it had basically gone through these horrible decade of the 1970s, uh, that they were valued and important. And so if you look at, frankly, the success of our military in, in 1990 and 91 in Desert Shield, Desert Storm, most of that equipment and most of the personnel that made that so successful, those were all products of the Reagan buildup. Yeah, there's a, you, you know this, but it's a, a, a moment I'll, I'll uh, never forget. It's uh, we gave the Peace Through Strength Award to uh, Vice President Dick Cheney. Uh, and, and when he received the award, he reflected on the victory the United States had in, in Desert Storm and the war, first war, Gulf War in, in Iraq. And he was Secretary of Defense, as Dick Cheney was. And he shared that the first call he made was to President Reagan, thanking him for the military buildup of the 1980s, because it was that investment, of course, that allowed the U.S. military to, to prevail in that conflict. You, he also, he also another trait of President Reagan is, and, and you know, you and I have been at this a long time. Your, your dad has been at this a long time. So I can do an assessment of the Pentagon starting with Robert McNamara who no one should ever want to emulate and probably one of the worst Secretary of Defense's we ever had. Who was the genius, right? This was the Kennedy uh, Secretary of Defense that came from General Motors and introduced all the, you know, one of the whiz kids, but uh, didn't play out uh, in, in kind of the way that most people anticipated given his uh, background and is a baron of, of industry. Yeah, and, and, and I will tell you, when you're in a war, whizzing, whizzing in arithmetic doesn't count for anything. What counts in a war is basically wanting to win the war, two, making sure the troops have the equipment and the support that they need. I will tell you in Vietnam, there were, we, we didn't have the supplies we needed a lot of times. A lot of times we ran out of ammunition. Uh, we didn't have hot chow. Uh, we didn't have drinkable, portable water uh, on many occasions. We didn't have the right clothing and protective gear, um, despite all the money that we were spending. And of course, McNamara, uh, did not have a winning strategy, and 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 you know I blame him personally. I hold him personally accountable for the death of a lot of the young Marines uh, that served with me in Vietnam that didn't have to die. And so, well, well, you know, you know that's that's a strong critique, but certainly they're not the only one to have that critique of of, of McNamara. Um, let's do one more Reagan question, and then jump to kind of what you've done with all this experience and captured in 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 this book, the ever shrinking fighting force. But uh, before we get there, you know, there you are, you're in the Senate Armed Services Committee and Casper Weinberger's testifying, the Reagan Secretary of Defense, uh, and he's doing it year over year and they're doing the buildup. Um, you know, it's always messy getting legislation passed. It's always, you know, disagreement, even if you agree about the big idea that you should rebuild the military. In your mind, uh, what stands out about those moments, those defense policy bills, where you had, you know, the Reagan uh, administration coming in with Weinberger and, and the Senate, uh, of course, doing their part in oversight uh, and, and approving the measures uh, to realize that. Was there one highlight, one personality, one, one moment that stands out to you? Yes, there is, Roger, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it. And what stands out for me in, in someone that has served in the Senate for 24 years and now worked with him for the, the last 20 years Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution gives the Congress the power and tells them to raise armies, maintain navies, and provide for the rules and governance thereof. And it also gives Congress the power of the purse. 
And even though John Tower was the strongest advocate you could find for the Reagan buildup and was very supportive, he was not happy with some of the Reagan decisions on strategic nuclear weapons, particularly the MX missile. And he called the joint, but then there were five members of the Joint Chiefs. He called them up to testify. He asked them their personal views. Three of the five did not support Reagan's decision. So Tower didn't support it. Now, this is an individual that was one of the strongest supporters. And now most of all the other policies did get supported on a bipartisan basis. Uh, we were very enthusiastic in Senator Nunn's camp. Uh, you know, John Lehman, tremendous leader in, in the Navy, building up our Navy. He had a lot of great advice about, you know, management of the Pentagon that I wished everybody had listened to him back then. But the point that I would say is, one, Reagan made a lot of great recommendations. He had strong leaders, civilian and military in the Pentagon. The Congress was very receptive because you had these great people that had served in World War II and Korea, um, Danny Inouye, Ted Stevens, John Tower, um, Howard Cannon, Barry Goldwater, uh, John Warner came, John Glenn came, Senator Nunn had served in the Coast Guard. So you had a, the makeup of the committee was very pro-military, but very discerning in making sure that the buildup was really providing the capabilities that we needed. And, and I would say, I rest my case when you look at what happened in Desert Shield, Desert Storm. Yeah, I said, military to be in a fair fight. And they darn sure were not in a fair fight in Desert Shield, Desert Storm. Yeah, well, they totally kicked butt. <laughs> I love that uh, uh, story you just shared about uh, Senator Tower. Of course, he was uh, uh, diminutive in size, but uh, of course, uh, perhaps uh, outsized other senators in terms of presence uh, and, and carried out despite the fact he was a Republican senator from, from Texas, uh, who was otherwise, as you know, aligned, still asserted uh, his view, carrying out Article 1, Section A of the Constitution. That's, that's a great Great anecdote there. Let's move now, Arnold. We could do the Reagan uh, looking back uh, probably all day, but I want to get to your book, um, which um, been through your book here. I, this is this is textbook material. I mean, truly, people uh, who want to understand how the Pentagon works, uh, the history of how its processes kind of came about, and then uh, perhaps what needs to be addressed and fixed is all captured here. But you start with this title, The Ever-Shrinking Fighting Force. Um, what I take away from that, and this is from conversations with you over the years, is that we are spending a lot of money in our military, as we should. It's a core responsibility, as you know, of, of, of the federal government. Article 1, Section 8 calls for it. But we're getting less bang for the buck, that the force that we're uh, uh, buying is, is smaller. And uh, tell us why this is the problem you want to wrap your arms around. Because there's a lot you can talk, we can talk about Afghanistan, you can talk about China. Why is this your entry point into the discussion of our military? Well, Roger, it really does. And I mean, I mean it sincerely. And is when I think back to what Corporal Hammonds did for me, I, I shouldn't be here now. I should not have a wonderful wife, four wonderful kids and 10 wonderful grandkids if it hadn't been for Corporal Hammonds. And so every day, I worry about the future of this country. I worry about our democratic freedoms. And I see China on the march. I see them on the march militarily, economically, technologically, and diplomatically. And I see that we're spending in constant dollars more than we spent at the peak of the Reagan buildup. 
and yet the fighting force is 50% smaller. We have a million less active duty personnel for more money than Ronald Reagan at the peak of the buildup. We have 35 to 40% less fighting units, Army brigades, Navy battle force ships, Air Force fighter squadrons. So we're not getting the bang for the buck. And China is purchasing power. They're outproducing us. And, and we cannot afford to continue to allow this to happen. And so what we've got to do is reform the bad processes in the Pentagon so that we actually get more bang for the buck for the dollars we're spending. Um, and because if we don't, we're falling behind. I mean, you know, in the last five years, China produced 100 naval combatants, United States produced 20. I mean, I could give you these statistics every day. And so if we want to maintain uh, what Ronald Reagan, you know, peace through strength, if we want to maintain the freedoms that he so eloquently talked about in his autobiography in American life, we have got to basically get more combat power out of the dollars we spend and the Department of Defense and the Congress needs to basically start measuring the output and making sure that everything we do is better, faster, cheaper than our adversaries, particularly China. Great. So I'm going to play devil's advocate. Um, I'm doing that because I, I just to, to draw out your perspective, not because I disagree uh, with what you said. But we've had people on the show. We do work out of the Reagan Institute uh, with others. And they would say it's less about um, whether the force is the right size and that we have too small a force given the amount of dollars we're investing. It's more about do we have the right force, that the harder problem is not whether we have, you know, less or more ships, less or more uh, planes, fighter aircraft, um, or tanks, but it's more about should we be fighting and planning to invest uh, in tanks, in ships, in uh, fighter aircraft uh, of today? Are we doing what's necessary to transform them for the technologies and platforms of tomorrow. So in other words, uh, is maybe why isn't the problem about are we buying the right stuff, not about whether we have enough stuff? Roger, we have to do both. It's not an either or situation. I would say that we learned in the peak of the Cold War, because a lot of people made this argument when the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact had their massive buildup. And when Reagan was trying to have the buildup, they made this, this same argument. Uh, quality, not quantity. But basically, we've learned in the military, quantity has a quality all of its own. Number two, we've got to go after these emerging technologies. But here's the other thing. The, the, the adversaries have dramatically improved their weaponry and their capability. The Chinese ships, they, these are not canoes and tugboats. These are massive naval combatants. So when you when they have not just large numbers, but they have quality that equals our own, you've got to have the quantity as well. But you're absolutely right. You've got to have the right force. You've got to go after these emerging technologies, hypersonic, microelectronic, quantum, 5G, uh, uh, all those autonomy and things like that. But you also have got to be able to have the, the numbers to basically deal with our adversaries. And so you have to do both. So I let me ask you what, what, one detail. Uh, you make a great point uh, of the kind of putting everything in constant dollars and saying that the end of the, the Trump administration, we spent $657 million compared to the end of the Reagan administration, 619. How do you respond uh, to the argument that right now we're spending less than 4% 
GDP on defense as a metric, right? So you look at GDP, gross domestic domestic product, we're actually in the just under, you know, kind of three and a half percent range or so. Of course, during the Reagan buildup, not the end of his administration, but during the height of the buildup, 85, 1985, 1986, you know, you're knocking on 5% GDP. How do you respond to that argument to say, actually, uh, as a percentage GDP basis, we're spending less and therefore we need to be spending more? Well, I would say that the measure, the right measure, and, and you know, there's this is debated every year. It's, you know, the, the classic book uh, by Alan and Thoban back in the 60s was how much is enough for defense? And we're still having that debate. I think you measure it against the threats. Uh, yes, the GDP measure is a nice historical measure, but I would want to measure it against the threats. And the threats are increasing. We're in a more dangerous world than we were ever in in the peak of the Cold War when all we had to worry about was the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact. They had the, they were, had the military advantage. Now we're dealing with a threat in China that's got an economic advantage. They have more, more embassies and diplomatic posts around the world now than we do. So diplomatically, economically, they're catching up. And certainly they're rebuilding and building a technologically very capable uh, military that's not just hinged to their shores, but it's got power projection. So I say you based on the threat and based on those threats, I, I would agree with you that we should be increasing the budget, but we shouldn't be increasing it unless we're going to get more bang for the buck. If all we're going to do is increase it. So, for example, since 9-11, we have cut the active duty military 100,000 fighters and we have added 136,000 civilians. And so I don't think adding bureaucrats puts fear in the heart of our adversaries. And so the point is, yes, we should be making the increases, but if we don't spend it on the things that result in war fighting, we, it, it hasn't done us any good to increase the budget. So I, good. I just wanted to get uh, General Pinaro on the record on, on, on defense dollars in terms of what the right amount is. Um, but now let's go what happens underneath. Underneath the budget, I'm, I'm looking at the outline of your book here because you organize reform, you know, all the things we need to do to get more bang for the buck. Either there's leadership reforms, you have process reforms, you have congressional reforms. Um, in, in, in an unfair way, take two minutes, but no more. Give me, you know, the two or three things from your expansive book that if we did, if we just captured this kind of noose that's around all the Defense Department dollars that prevents it from actually making the fighting force grow and be more effective would be addressed, perhaps resolved in part. What are those two, three things that you would throw out there in each of those categories? Go ahead. Roger, I would say I would take defense-wide spending or the massive overhead and support elements of the Pentagon, which the Pentagon argues 20% of the budget. I think it's 30% of the budget. I would dramatically reduce the tail and move it over to the two, the 300,000 active duty people serving in inherently non-governmental functions, the layers of management, the massive defense agencies. The second thing I would do is I would totally reform the acquisition system that we, we spend close to $400 billion a year on goods and services, supplies and equipment. And about all you can say is spend more, take longer, get less. It used to take five years to build a combat aircraft. Now it takes 30 years. China does it in five. And then the third thing is we've got to deal with the deferred compensation of the all volunteer force. There are 2.4 million retirees, 1.3 million active duty, 50%, 56% of the $50 billion healthcare budget supports people that are no longer serving. So if we made some fundamental changes in 
in the overhead, in the acquisition, and in the life cycle cost of the volunteer force, we could shift that money and any other increases over to the warfighting side. So that would be the three areas where I think you can make the biggest difference. And then the last one is the Congress, which whose processes are broken. They've got to get their work done on time. They've got to get rid of their duplicative processes, and they basically have got to do better oversight. So that would those would be that would be my answer. Okay. Well, uh, succinct to the point. Um, Let's walk it back just a little bit. Um, the first one you said was just bureaucracy, this growth of bureaucracy on the civilian side. Uh, your book, you acknowledge uh, former Secretary of Navy John Lehman, uh, who uh, first introduced the word bloat to me in the context of describing the Pentagon. And, and, and there's this bloat there that if you remove it, it will ease processes and of course reduce costs. You've been around this town for some time, you know, I don't, I say this in a, in a praiseworthy way, not pejoratively, you're an insider, right? You've shared this, as your book shows, there are pictures throughout with secretaries of defense. Why can't this reform be implemented? You've said this for some time, your argument gets stronger, there's more and more evidence behind it, but you've been arguing this, you know, for a while. Why can't we realize this change? Well, I would say two reasons, one, there are a lot of jobs tied up in the overhead. There are 900,000 jobs in the headquarters, the defense agencies and things of that nature, and it's over $300 billion of the budget. So if you go to a, a, a military depot in a conservative district, you will find that conservative congressperson is just as supportive of the civil service unions and the workforces there is anybody that would be a traditional supporter. So it's, it's tied to jobs. Congress has been very reluctant, even with the Pentagon, tries to bite the bullet, which isn't that frequent, Congress is not going along with it. They won't let them retire legacy weapon systems. But I would say what's different now, and you're right, uh, my frustration and one of the reasons for writing the book is, you know, we've been hammered at some of these issues for 20 years. And, and even the most successful and powerful Secretary of Defense, Bob Gates tried to take on OSD, try to cut the size and try to get rid of some of the overhead. But when he left, it was larger than when he went after it. So, but the threat, I, I would say the, the, the reason I think there's an opening now is there's a bipartisan agreement in the Congress. There's a general understanding of the American public. Certainly, in, you know, the Reagan Forum, the Reagan Institute, the Reagan Foundation has been an incredible leader in educating people about the world we live in. We have got to bite this bullet. We have got to take action because frankly, our, our, our lifestyle and freedoms and democracy depend on it. Uh, well, there's a lot at stake, and, and certainly, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're aligned on that. Um, last question about kind of the insides of reform, and then we'll, we'll get a little bit more uh, on some other aspects in the Congress. You know, so much of, of, of this reform uh, requires a little bit of a crisis, is what you're saying, to, to, to realize it. Uh, you mentioned Secretary Gates. He was able to reform acquisition processes, the second category you outlined, because he created an acquisition process that operated outside what the normal regulations call for. In doing so, he saved lives of our servicemen uh, operating in Iraq and Afghanistan, and ultimately enabled them to prevail in the military conflict. Uh, the surge of forces in Iraq comes to mind. Uh, how much of this requires just creating separate parallel tracks to, to realize, you know, the, the good management, the good acquisition processes, 
that you want the military to do? Or fundamentally, do we just, you know, does it need this fundamental reform uh, with the existing uh, bureaucracy and, and, and processes? Well, Roger, that's a terrific uh, question and observation as well. As I point out and dedicated my book, I said, look, the people that come to work in the Pentagon every day and in the Congress and on the Hill and in the think tanks, active duty, guard reserve, defense civilians, people in the think tanks, event contractors, they're all trying to do the very best job they can for the warfighter and the taxpayers. But as former Secretary of Defense Bill Perry once told me, bad processes beat good people every day. So you do have to change the processes because even Gates, even though he was remarkably successful on the MRAPs and things of that, and even though, frankly, Ash Carter, Frank Kendall, and Ellen Ward did yeoman's work to try to improve the acquisition process, and they did make progress, but it's not how far we've come, it's how far we still have to go, because, you know, you the Ford class carrier, I read something today about how they're going to get the last elevators finally working, and they're acting like that's a huge deal. Well, guess what? That thing's been in the process since 2005. So I we're talking about the new carrier, right? That's the Ford yeah. class carrier. Okay. Yeah, okay, that, that should have been working 20 years ago. Um, so, so you've got to change the processes, but you're right. You've got to have people in, on the Hill and in the Pentagon that are willing to be junkyard dogs and bite the bullet and, and do so because if we don't do it, the warfighter is not going to have the tools they need. And you, you made a point earlier. It's cyber. It's space. It's these modern technologies. We have got to get the cycle time down of getting them in the hands of our warfighters with speed and with relevance. And, and that's not what the acquisition process does today. Let me ask you uh, uh, two more, uh, and, then, and then we'll move on to some of the current event items and, and get to our lightning round. Um, good managers. Bob Gates, we mentioned, you know, he... he he fired more people, you know, Rumsfeld, Secretary Rumsfeld, who recently passed away, got a lot of negative press for being mean and, 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 you know, kind of a tough manager. The person who actually fired more senior leaders to and manage that place was Bob Gates than Don Rumsfeld. Uh, John Lehman, you know, he had all the authorities he would say he needed from the Congress. It's just, you got to find leaders willing to use them. And he built a, a, a large Navy why can't we accomplish the things you've described with just really tough, good managers that are willing to take on, you know, and, and know how to operate within the Congress and within the bureaucracy? Why is that not enough? I, I believe, Roger, I actually believe that would be enough because they would bypass a lot of these bad processes and they would overrule the entrenched bureaucracy. I mean, you go back to David Packard, Don Atwood, who was the deputy under Dick Cheney. Cheney was a very strong Secretary of Defense, and he had a lot of really good people around him. Um, you, you've got to basically be willing to make tough decisions, and, and we've gotten to the point in our government where, you know, it's the get along, go along, and, and people have said about the decision-making process in the Pentagon, they call it the tyranny of consensus. They don't like sharp elbows, and people don't like being unpopular, but if we are going to get done what needs to be done, if we're going to increase the output to be better, faster, cheaper than China, it's gonna take strong managers and it's gonna take people that are willing to make tough decisions in both the Congress and in the Pentagon and be very unpopular for doing it because it will be unpopular. So 
we have all these new technologies that are emerging in the commercial space. We're trying to integrate them for our military. It's, it's a necessary condition so that we could prevail in our competition with great powers or emerging powers like a China or Russia and others. Um, the program of record, you know, this process that has a carrier like the forward class you described takes forever or new uh, a fighter aircraft takes forever. We're trying to uh, introduce new technologies, new entrants. Are you optimistic that uh, having some of these new technologies that potentially could deliver capability to our military for pennies on the dollar will ultimately transform the way you know the 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 military buys things and get through these these kind of dinosaur-like uh, processes? I'll give you a specific example that might help someone trying to understand what I'm what I'm saying. You know, we, we have fighter aircraft that are manned right now and they're exquisite. You know, F-35 is one that's pointed a lot, F-22, you know, whatever one you want to pick. But the future could be cheaper, autonomous, you know, uh, dispensable uh, aircraft that really you can, you can attrit in a conflict and can swarm an adversary. And that would end up giving you new capability for pennies on the dollar. That idea... Is that compelling to you, or do you think that's science fiction? I'm not enough of a technical expert. There's certainly people in our department and in uniform that believe that has a lot of potential, and, and we ought to explore that potential. And we need to take risks. We need to take risks with some of this technology, and it's going to fail. And we ought not to basically then, um, you know, put in place, you know, we have hundreds of thousands of pages of laws, rules, and regulations that govern acquisition because nobody wants to basically have anybody make a mistake. Well, you're going to make a mistake when you're, when you're you know, working on these cutting edge technologies. And so uh, a lot of those technologies have promise. We haven't seen them being brought into the program in any sufficient quantities yet. Certainly everybody's talking a good game. Certainly our active duty military is focused on this. Certainly we have these 10 technologies that the department thinks are essential. Heidi Shu, who's coming in to be the head of research and engineering, very dynamic leader. Um, we'll see. I think. But but I going to the thesis of your book and 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 measured by bang for the buck, do you think technology not will only allow us to prevail in conflict, but actually deliver more capability for cheaper, more bang for the buck, and give you a larger force, not a shrinking force? Do you think technology is a way to drive that outcome? If we, we've been substituting, you know, uh, technology for labor in the Pentagon for a lot of years, and certainly if we buy it like the commercial industry, like our industries buy it, but if we buy it through the Pentagon typical bureaucratic thing, it's going to cost more and take too long. So we, we've got to basically use commercial best practices, and that was one of the reasons, you know, why I personally was so excited that they nominated Mike Brown to come in because he comes from Silicon Valley, the commercial side. Now his, his, his nomination got sidelined, uh, but that's what's got to happen with these technologies. I mean, in the, in the, to be competitive in the, in the world economy, you can't take 15 years to bring something into fruition. And you, you, yeah. the cycle time has to be a lot quicker. So the military has got to start adopting the cycle times that we have in commercial industry. Yeah, the cycle times, months, not years, great point. Um, well, we're going to go to something that you care deeply about, which is the U.S. Marine Corps. Um, if that wasn't evident before we started this podcast, and people looking at your bio, hearing your story, uh, made it very clear there's a commandant in the Marine Corps right now 
who is mixing things up, taking some risk, outlining an approach to warfare for the Marine Corps that perhaps is a departure for what Marines have grown used to uh, in the decades prior. How do you feel about the direction the Marine Corps is headed? So I was trained from day one in the Marine Corps. The Marine Corps is to be a force in readiness. It's in the statute, it's in the law, to be the most ready when the nation is least ready. The Marine Corps is a crisis response force. If we've got to get people out of our embassy in Afghanistan in an emergency basis, it's going to be the United States Marine. We, we had a saying <laughs> during the peak of the Cold War, when it absolutely positively has to be destroyed overnight, the United States Marine Corps. We're not the <laughs> Army. We win battles. We don't win wars. You know, I, 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 you know Marines revere their commandant, and uh, I have not had enough time, I'll be candid, to really study in detail uh, all the changes that are going on in the Marine Corps. I would say as long as we are gonna maintain our readiness and be a force in readiness and continue to be the crisis response force and continue to be the force that merit people expect when there's trouble sending the Marines, then I'm okay with the future direction. If we're moving away from that, then I would take a deep breath. Got it, uh, great response. Um, let's move to an area you're expert in, uh, which is perhaps uh, less clear to those who don't follow the state today, and that is how do we get people confirmed by the U.S. Senate to take on leadership posts uh, in government? Uh, we know you have to go through the U.S. Senate to get confirmed. You watch this closely, and based on what you've written and, and what you uh, write about and talk about in other fora, uh, we're in a bad place. What's going on with Senate confirmations? Why can't we get administrations, whether it's Republican or Democrat, to be uh, confirmed and get through the U.S. Senate to serve in government? Well, Roger, this is another process that's rooting in the Constitution. It's the Senate's advice and consent power for nominations, both in the domestic, the defense, and in the judiciary. And here again, we have a process that's broken. It's broken in the executive branch. It takes way too long for them to select, vet, and nominate people. Uh, in the Kennedy administration, uh, it took three months to get all his top people through the Senate and confirmed and in position. Nowadays, it's up to a year. It's been going up each and every year. So the executive branch has gotten much slower and, and much more political in the way they do things in terms of the selections. In the Senate, um, we've gone to a point, and the Senate Armed Services Committee is an oasis of bipartisan approach, and, and they move things relatively quickly. What happens is when you get on the Senate executive calendar, we're, we're into what I call the nomination slow roll. Both parties basically, in the Senate, you have to have unanimous consent to do anything. And if you don't, then one senator can block anything. And that's the whole debate about the filibuster and the internal processes in the Senate. And so what's happened is um, in recent years, and, and not just related to you know, the current administration or even the Trump or Obama, over time, we've gotten to the point, unfortunately, where um, the Senate, on the executive calendar takes much longer to get people through. I, we had people in the Trump administration that were not controversial, that were totally qualified for their positions in the Pentagon, and it took them a year to get through the process. We also now have developments where there are people that are pushing additional restrictions, particularly when you wanna bring people in that have high technological skills or have tremendous expertise uh, in basically accomplishing and managing 
Um, we have people in the Senate now that want to basically put restrictions on one, what they can do after they're confirmed and in their position, and two, the fact that they, if they come into the uh, government, then they have restrictions on what they can do when they leave and they go back out into civilian life. So basically, it's almost a poison pill because it right. it doesn't allow right. them to to work and pursue their professional life afterwards. I hate to say it, but there's there's some people that have the sentiment that anybody that's been successful in the business world or in the industry somehow is flawed and, and somehow is, doesn't have integrity. And I will tell you, I've been doing this for 50 plus years and and I, I can't think of any examples of people that were confirmed by the Senate that, that ran into trouble with any of these ethical issues. It's always been people in the executive branch that, that broke the rules and broke the laws like Darlene Julian in the Air Force. So, so but... It's a, it's a real impediment. If we're gonna try to get and be technologically competitive with China, not just in the Pentagon, but in the Department of Energy and Pharma, I mean, do you think really that we don't wanna have people when we're dealing with a pandemic that come in Health and Human Services and the National Institute of Health that aren't qualified and technically yeah. capable and expert in their fields? We certainly need that. Well, I, uh, personnel is, is, is kind of where we started this conversation and it, it's true for getting the right people on the front line in combat, and it's true for getting the right people uh, leading in in our in our government agencies. Uh, we only have a few minutes left. Uh, we're going to get to the lightning round in just a moment, but I did want you to comment on your thoughts of where the Biden administration is, particularly with our Pentagon and national security. Uh, I've heard you talk about the Pentagon in this administration being more of a uh, supporting command versus a supported command. Uh, which is a kind of a military way to describe an agency that's really going to be taking a backseat in support of diplomacy versus an agency that's front and center in administration's policy. Take a minute just to, to give us your take on the role of the military and the Pentagon in the Biden administration. Roger, we, those of us that come from a military background, the Senate Armed Services Committee, you look at being a supported command and a supporting command. So let's take the wars in the Middle East, the U.S. Central Command was the command actually out there fighting the war and therefore anybody else was supporting them. So they were the supported command and then the other people in the Pentagon are the supporting command. In this administration, uh, they have basically said, you know, we need to restore diplomacy. We need to restore the whole of government approach, an, a, an approach that Secretary Mattis pushed, Secretary Gates pushed. And so you have the State Department and the National Security Council, very powerful um, people that are very close to the president. They would be in the lead. And so they would be the supported command and the Pentagon, which is used to being the 800 pound gorilla. They're going to be the supporting command. They're going to basically reinforce the direction of our diplomacy. Certainly, they're going to be ready at a moment's notice if we've got to you know, defend the country. I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying. Um, you know, they've gotten into the point because we had all the resources and the combatant commands were filling a vacuum because our State Department uh, had atrophied over time in many administrations, not just recent ones. Uh, the Pentagon was kind of filling a vacuum. Well, that's shifting now in this administration. And so, again, uh, diplomacy is out front. Uh, with the Pentagon providing the support. So let me get your opinion on that. I, I, I can't really discern whether or not you think that's the right balance or an overcorrection. Is this an overcorrection or is this uh, a good approach? We don't know yet if it's an overcorrection, being candid. And, and frankly, it's the right way to do it, the country team whole of government approach. But I think, frankly, 
we'll probably learn the hard way like we have in every other administration, Democrat and Republican, that when the chips are down and when things get tough, it's the Department of Defense. I mean, look who's out there fighting hurricanes and floods and forest fires. Look who gets called in to close the border. Look who gets called in to protect the Capitol. Let's just face it. When, when things are incapacitated across large swatches of government, when there's danger in the world, uh, it's going to be our Department of Defense. Who are you going to call? You're going to call DOD. Okay, let's uh, go to our lightning round. Uh, we're wrapping up here with General Arnold Pernaro. Um, who wrote a fantastic book, The Ever-Shrieking Fighting Force. Uh, you can get it on Amazon uh, or anywhere where they sell books. Uh, this is where, General Bernardo, you share with us uh, your favorite speech by President Reagan, uh, your favorite quote by President Reagan, and your favorite Reagan book. Take it uh, in any order you like, all three, two, or just one. Let's go. Well, the, in the peak of the Reagan buildup, when the Russians were, were knocking on our doorstep, he had a slogan called Trust But Verify, and I think that's applicable today. The other thing is, the 40th anniversary of D-Day was a very, very memorable event, and he gave a speech in, in 1984 where he said, we always try to be prepared for peace, and we need to be prepared for the current aggression, so peace through strength. And then another quote that I like is, Freedom is never more than one generation from extinction. We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, and handed on for them to do the same. We need the people in our government today, in the Pentagon, on the Hill, in the think tanks and industry, to basically get that in the bloodstream and protect our freedom for the future, as he did in his autobiography, An American Life, we talked about American liberty, which we cherish. Westminster speech, great quote, the, the book in American life. General Alpernaro, an excellent lightning round contribution, a wonderful conversation. Thank you for being on the show. We wish you success on this book. Check it out, The Ever-Shrinking Fighting Force. Uh, we look forward to having you back on in the future, Arnold.